August 1921, beneath a sweltering Indian sun, amid the humid air of the Malabar monsoon, a band of Irish men stood shoulder to shoulder and back to back. Red, sunburnt hands grasping their rifles as they picked their way through overturned rails and uprooted sleepers, down a sabotaged railway line away from the town where they had already left several slain comrades. They were men from the Calico garrison of B and C Company's 1st Battalion Leinster Regiment, and this is the story of how they ended up there, in the middle of an Indian uprising, in what was the last fighting done by any of the British Army regiments headquartered in what was about to become the Irish Free State. This was the Malabar Rebellion, which ran from the autumn of 1921 into the spring of 1922, on the southwest coast of India, in what was then part of the Madras Presidency and is now part of the state of Kerala. Hi, I'm your host Terry Dunn, and you're listening to Peters and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land. This is our third podcast episode bringing into light the hidden histories of the Irish Revolution. If you're just joining us, be sure to check out our previous episodes, The Forgotten and Prairie Fire, which are about labour and agrarian movements in rural Ireland in the 1920s. You're listening to our third episode, The Last Campaign of the Leinsters, which is a little different. It is about a counter-revolutionary role played by some Irish men in British uniform in the world revolutionary wave of 1917 to 1923. Thanks for joining us, and let's get back to the last campaign of the Leinsters. So in this first part, we'll have a bit about the Irish regiments in the British Army, before turning to touch on the long-term background to the Malabar Rebellion, and how British administrators drew on Irish analogies to understand what they were doing in India. Then in the second part, we'll look at the actual course of the rebellion itself. In 1922, there were 12 battalions comprising the soon-to-be-disbanded six southern Irish regiments of the British Army. Four of those battalions were stationed in India and had to return home from there for disbandment. They were the 1st Battalion Leinster Regiment, 1st Battalion Connacht Rangers, 2nd Battalion Royal Dublin Fusiliers and 2nd Battalion Royal Irish Regiment. The regiments were officially disbanded in July 1922. India was an appropriate final station for the Royal Dublin Fusiliers and for the Leinster Regiment, because that is where their origins were. The Leinster Regiment was formed from an amalgamation of the 3rd Bombay European Regiment, which had been originally founded in 1853, and the Prince of Wales Royal Canadian Regiment, which, while raised in Canada in 1858, had been established specifically for service in India. The Leinster Regiment was headquartered in Burr, County Offaly, or the King's County, as it was then known. And it was the regiment for the area of counties Mead, Westmead, Longford, Leash and Offaly. Uh, This was its designated recruiting area, though I should stress that does not mean that everyone in the regiment came from that area. Men would transfer from one regiment to another, or join up in a nearby town, maybe across a county border from their home, or join whatever unit happened to be temporarily stationed near them. Likewise, the Royal Dublin Fusiliers were formed from an amalgamation of the Royal Madras Fusiliers and the Royal Bombay Fusiliers. The Madras and Bombay units had originally been part of the military forces of the East India Company and were incorporated into the British Army in the early 1860s when the company was being wound up. The Royal in the title was in honour of the role the units played in putting down the First Indian War of Independence of 1857 to 59, 
or the mutiny or sepoy revolt as it is more commonly known in the West. Approximately 50 Irishmen won the Victoria Cross, the British Empire's greatest military award, suppressing Indian rebellion in those years. The Royal Dublin Fusiliers had their headquarters in Nace, County Kildare, and had as its home area counties Carlow, Wicklow, Dublin and Kildare. The disbandment of the five infantry regiments was marked by a ceremony at St George's Hall in Windsor Castle on the morning of Monday the 12th of June 1922. In the ritual, the regimental colours, their flags, were presented to the reigning monarch King George V by colour parties from each of the regiments. Specifically addressing the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, the King said, quote, Your history is the history of early British dominance in India, and you have shown abundantly that you could fight as sternly in South Africa and in Europe as in the East Indies. End quote. Of the remaining four Southern Irish regiments, the Royal Munster Fusiliers had similar origins in East India Company military units comprised of European soldiers. Hence, the Royal Munster Fusiliers had an engraving of a Bengal tiger as part of their insignia on its cap badge, while the Royal Dublin Fusiliers had a tiger and an elephant on theirs. As with the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, the Royal and Royal Munster Fusiliers was an honour bestowed on the regiment due to the role it played in keeping India British during the uprising in 1857, the so-called mutiny. The Royal Munster Fusiliers, known as the Dirty Shirts, had their main barracks in Tralee and their home counties were Kerry, Cork, Limerick and Clare. Then there was the Royal Irish Regiment with its home barracks in Clonmel, County Tipperary and the Connacht Rangers, known as the Devil's Own, based out of Galway. On the 2nd of November 1920, a hundred years ago, Private James Joseph Daly, a Connacht Ranger, who was just two months shy of his 21st birthday, was executed in northern India, in Punjab province, for his part in a protest against the actions of British forces in his Irish homeland. I have before me the first volume of the official history of the Royal Irish Regiment. And like the rest of these units, that was a well-travelled one. A really striking thing in its history is the toll wrought by disease. So during the Second Anglo-Burmese War in 1852 and 53, 15 private soldiers of the regiment died in combat or of wounds sustained in combat, while over 300 died from disease. Likewise, during the First Opium War in China in the early 1840s, two privates of the Royal Irish Regiment were killed in action and four died from wounds from combat while over 150 died from disease. The First Opium War was about protecting East India Company's illegal opium trade with China, and it resulted in the establishment of the British colony of Hong Kong. There the troops lived, according to a Madras army surgeon, in, quote, tents pitched on low paddy fields, surrounded by stagnant water, putrid and stinking from quantities of dead animal and vegetable matter. End quote. With poor rations, some of the food they brought with them was uneatable and, quote, buckled up to the throat in their full-dress coaties beneath a sun hotter than was ever experienced in India, end quote. They fell to fever, diarrhoea and dysentery. The Royal Irish Regiment also took part in the closing stages of the New Zealand Wars, fighting against Maoris in the 1860s. That's only one of these regiments, and that's only a sample of the colonial wars that that regiment took part in. There was also a short-lived cavalry unit called the South Irish Horse, previously known as the South of Ireland Imperial Yeomanry, which was only around for about 20 years before it was disbanded in 1922. It, 
and the Ulster Cavalry Regiment, the North Irish Horse, were established in the context of the South African War, also known as the Boer War, of the years 1899 to 1902. There were three infantry regiments in the north, including two that straddled what was to become the border between the six counties and the 26 counties. But they continued on in the British Army in some form after 1922. They were the Royal Inniskillen Fusiliers, associated with West Ulster, the Royal Irish Fusiliers, associated with South Ulster and Louth, and Antrim and Down's Royal Irish Rifles. There was, and indeed is, also an Irish Guards unit, but that is usually bracketed separately from all of these other Irish regiments, as it was not actually headquartered in Ireland, but in London. A Guards unit is an elite force with high-status ceremonial roles. The Irish Guards were set up to honour Irish participation in the South African War, which was the largest Irish military mobilisation before the World Wars. So again, that is a colonial context. Again, we are talking about the Wars of Empire. Over the 19th century, there was a massive amount of Irishmen in the British Army. In fact, for some of that period, the British Army was disproportionately Irish. Uh, So in 1830, 42.2% of the British Army were Irishmen, while Irish people made up only 32.2% of the population of the United Kingdom. At this time, Irish soldiers in the army outnumbered those from any other group. Now, until the middle of the century, British India was governed by the East India Company, and its armies were likewise disproportionately Irish. So, of the recruits to the Bengal army in the 25 years from 1825 to 1850, nearly 50% of them were Irish. In fact, these statistics probably underestimate the extent of Irish recruits. During the years of the Tan War, what is sometimes known as the Irish War of Independence, that is the years 1919, 1920, 1921, the rate of recruitment to the British Army regiments based in the southern parts of Ireland actually went up in comparison to the recruiting rate in the years before the First World War. Men were leaving Cork and Tipperary, Longford and Clare, to join the British Army in 1919 and in 1920 and in 1921. So who joined these military units? Well, to just take the 1st Battalion of the Leinster Regiment as a sample, what you see in the records of who was in the rank and file in 1922 is overwhelmingly labourers or general labourers or farm labourers. You do not see a skilled tradesman, except very exceptionally, and you do not see a farmer. In the case of the 1st Battalion Leinster Regiment in 1922, mostly, but not always, these were men from the traditional recruiting area of the regiment and usually Irish, though there are some occasional exceptions. So in economic terms, we are talking about a section of society which was often unemployed or underemployed. That is to say, with precarious, casual, temporary employment. It brings to mind what Marx wrote about the Reserve Army of Labour. Now, that is a military metaphor, not an actual army. What it refers to is this. The capitalist economy is subject to cycles of boom and bust, when at certain junctures there is the potential for rapid expansion, either generally or in a specific sector. The workers for such expansions have to come from somewhere, which is why there needs to be a reserve of the unemployed and underemployed to draw on. And he argues that following the impact of colonialism in Ireland which was to de-industrialise much of Ireland 
to scorch any prospective industrial development in the horse-style environment that was a Manchester-dominated free trade zone. In that context, one source of a reserve army of labour for the original British capitalist industrialisation was Ireland, of which he writes, quote, Ireland is at present only an agricultural district of England. Marked off by a wide channel from the country to which it yields corn, wool, cattle, industrial and military recruits. End quote. So one might say the force of colonialism created a colonial force in the form of the Irish regiments. Now to turn to the long-term background to the Malabar Rebellion of 1921 and 1922, the last campaign of any of the Southern Irish regiments disbanded in 1922. The area where the rebellion took place was incorporated into the British Empire at the beginning of the 19th century. British legislation in the early 1800s turned local rulers called genmies from receivers of tribute into owners of the soil. Perhaps not unlike the process here in Ireland of plantation and surrender and regrant and so on. So previously genmies had a right to a tax or a tribute, shall we say, but were not actual proprietors in the way we understand it today. This was brought to the rather ridiculous extreme where you had what was called land-seeking genmi, which is where there was uncleared forest, which had no claims on it, no particular owner, and there was an effort to find someone to own it, as if the land could not exist without a landlord. Just before British conquest, the district had been dominated by the Mysore state, successively ruled by the famous Hyder Ali and his son, the even more famous Tipu Sultan. After four wars, that state was finally destroyed at the siege of Seringapatam between the 5th of April 1799 and the 4th of May 1799. Arthur Wellesley, later the first Duke of Wellington, was the British commander there. And if you look at the Wellington Monument in the Phoenix Park in Dublin, the man's time in India is commemorated there on that monument. If you go into the Victorian Albert Museum in London, you can see Tipu's Tiger, a mechanical contraption looted from Tipu Sultan's palace. This is a doll with automated moving parts, representing a red-coated British soldier, prostrate and being devoured by a tiger. It even has sound effects which are supposed to be the soldier's screams. A particular problem was the British rule was introduced into the area right at the moment where the power of the Jemmys was at its weakest. The power of the Jemmys was weak at the time because this part of Malabar was subject to invasion by the Mysore state. It was part of the frontier of the Mysore state and a lot of Jemmys had fled as a consequence. So the local cultivators were having a happy time before the British arrived. So after the place is put under British rule, fairly soon after, there is a rebellion between the years 1799 and 1802. Now, that is the last major rebellion before 1921. But what there is in the meanwhile, what the area becomes particularly known for, is the assassination of particular landlords or moneylenders or other basically agrarian targets. And after the assassination, there would be a last stand. So a party would kill a landlord, and then occupy a strong point and die fighting the Crown forces. And that sort of thing carried on for the whole of the 1800s. And in many ways, the rebellion of 1921 related to that tradition. So essentially, British rule transformed the nature of the power of the local ruling class, putting most of the local population at a disadvantage. There were two schools of thought among British administrators in trying to understand what was going on. Firstly, the fanatic school, which interpreted events in terms of crazy Muslims, what the British called the Moplas, or more properly, the Mapillas, the local Malayalam-speaking Muslim population, and secondly, the pro-tenant school, 
who basically saw what was going on as the result of the bolstering of landlord power by British law. Both drew on Irish analogies and Irish examples to understand Malabar and to make their case. So the comment, quote, it is another Irish question, end quote, headlines the minutes of some of the discussion that led to the first piece of pro-tenant legislation for Malabar, which was the Compensation for Tenants Improvements Act of 1887, which sounds a lot like the Landlord and Tenant Ireland Act of 1870. That was part one, looking at the Irish regiments and the long-term background to the Malabar Rebellion. We'll get into part two, looking at the Leinster Regiment's role in the Malabar Rebellion in a moment. Remember to subscribe to Peers and Sheep wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts and TuneIn Radio. For images related to each episode, check us out on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. And we also have a website, peelersandsheep.ie. Now let's get back to India in August 1921. From August 1921 through to February 1922, men of the 1st Battalion Leinster Regiment were in combat against a rebellion in Malabar on the southwestern coast of India, what is now a northern part of the state of Kerala, but was then the western part of the Madras Presidency. At the outbreak of the First World War, the battalion had been based in India, so it left India for France in 1914, and then after the First World War, in 1919, it was to return to India. Incidentally, while the 1st Battalion Leinster Regiment was in India before the Great War, the commander-in-chief of all forces there was the Clareman, Sir Garrett O'Moore Cree. Interestingly, five of Cree's ancestors had fought in the Battle of Vandavasi in 1760, which was part of the decisive struggle for the status of paramount European power in India between Britain and France. Cree's ancestors had fought on the French side, and in fact, at Vandavasi, the French were commanded by Galway man Count Delali and the British by Limerick man Sir Eyre Coote. So they returned to India. 500 men of the 1st Battalion Leinster Regiment disembarked in Bombay on the 21st of November 1919, then followed a long train journey and distribution of the troops to different posts around the Madras Presidency, the southern and east coast province of British India. Two platoons of C Company formed the garrison at Calicut in Malabar on the southwestern coast. They were reinforced due to growing discontent in the Malabar region. So in the summer of 1921, the garrison there consisted of all of C Company and two platoons of B Company, all under the command of Captain Patrick McEnroy. That's uh, approximately 150 men or thereabouts. Patrick McEnroy had been a private in the Irish Guards and he worked his way up the ranks during the First World War. The war opened up avenues for social mobility. McEnroy was a noted boxer in the years before the Great War. In fact, he won the Navy and Army Middleweight Championship in 1911. He's in the local newspaper for Offaly, the Kings County Chronicle, in 1916 for receiving a medal, the Military Cross, at which time he was in the Leinster Regiment and was a lieutenant. By 1923, after the disbandment of the Leinster Regiment, he was in the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry. He was present in 1964 when in St. Brendan's Church in Burr, a new stained glass window was unveiled, one honouring the memory of the men of the Leinster Regiment. It was then 50 years after the start of the First World War. The barracks in Burr had been the regiment's headquarters. The Irish Guards the McEnroy was previously in are another Irish-British Army unit, one with the role of guarding the capital and the monarch. 
The fellas with the funny hats outside Buckingham Palace are from these guards units. As well as having this ceremonial role, they're an actual bona fide military force. Uh, in the Second World War movie A Bridge Too Far, Michael Caine played an Irish guards officer by the name of Vandalier, a descendant of the notorious landlords of Kilrush, County Clare. While the men of the Lancer Regiment were fighting in Malabar, their opponents, the Moplar or Mapilla rebels, were carrying the hopes of some Irish people back home. The most detailed Irish media report on the situation in Malabar that I have seen, and I have been looking, was that in Untoglock, the newsletter of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, of the 9th of September 1921. Untoglock, meaning the volunteer, was a fortnightly newsletter issued by the Central Command of the IRA, aka GHQ, to the rank and file members of the IRA, and which principally included tactical and operational advice, but also included commentary on important aspects of the political situation, both nationally and globally. I'm going to read out some parts of the report because it not only demonstrates Republican interest in and sympathy with the Malabar Rebellion, it also sets the scene of what was happening in India. So this is what Untoglock had to say. There appears to be ground for supposing that at least a semi-concerted insurgent movement is beginning in India. The Moplas in the southwest of the peninsula are an open insurrection. There has been fighting in Madras in the southeast and there are rumours from the Punjab in the extreme north. Also in Waziristan on the Afghan border there is chronic skirmishing. It would be easy to exaggerate the significance of all this, for we must remember that India is as big as all Europe if Russia is left out, and is populous, with many races and languages. Unity is not easy in such a case, but there would certainly seem to be fire as well as smoke in the present case. The factors making for concerted action are one, the non-cooperation movement which, though peaceful in itself, is almost certain to lead to fighting. Two, the Islamic discontent caused by English opposition to Turkey. Three, the huge number of disbanded soldiers, amounting to at least half a million, scattered all over the country. In these three factors there is certainly material for big events. The Mopla insurrection is an advantageous opening move from the Indian standpoint. The district is remote in the military sense. Tactically strong but weakly occupied in peacetime. On the land side, the only important approach is the railway from Madras and Bangalore, the main English garrison in southern India. The latter is 160 miles away even as the crow flies. The terrain is a coastal shelf about 20 miles wide, backed all the length by the western ghats, which reach 8,000 feet in places. Numerous streams flow into the Arabian Sea from this great range, so that roads and railways pass over culverts every mile or so. The country is well wooded also, which greatly assists road-blocking operations. Off the roads are soft rice fields making heavy motor traffic impossible. As a result, the insurgents dominate an area about as large as County Mayo. For their tactical measures, road cutting, overwhelming small posts, etc., have been those best suited to the situation. End quote. So this was all happening in the southwestern coast of India, in what is now the state of Kerala, but in the time of the British Empire was divided into two princely states administered by local rulers, Cochin and Triangor, and the Madras Presidency, which was directly administered by the British. The Madras Presidency was the southern province of British India. In the 1950s, the states or provinces in India were reorganised and the old British or princely districts replaced. Now, historically, the Kerala region was characterised by extremely strong seaborne trade links going back millennia, and its religious diversity reflects that in that it has very old Christian, Jewish and Muslim populations which have their origins as religious communities in trade links across the Arabian Sea 
with what we call the Middle East, or better, Western Asia. Kerala claims to have the oldest synagogue in the Commonwealth. It has Christian churches which claim origins in the evangelism of the biblical St. Thomas, that's Thomas the Apostle, or perhaps better known as uh, Doubting Thomas. And its Islamic influence is via sea trade, not from rulers from the north, from Central Asia, as is the case with the more northern part of India. So as of 2011, Kerala was approximately 55% Hindu, 27% Muslim and 18% Christian. At least in the northern part of the Kerala state, the Muslim population are known as the Mapillas, formerly anglicised as Moplas, which is an old-fashioned term and apparently a little derogatory, so I'll not be using it. Basically, Mapilla means a Muslim-speaking Malayalam, which is the main language of Kerala, but as I said, is usually seemingly just used in reference to people in the northern part of the state, in what was once the Malabar district. It is also worth bearing in mind that this is not just a matter of discrete, distinct religious communities. Over the course of 90 years, the Muslim proportion of the Malabar population went from one quarter to one third because of mass conversion of lower caste Hindus and former slave castes. Anyways, this is quite a different religious makeup of the population in comparison to the rest of southern India, which by and large is much more Hindu than the north of India. There is another significant Christian population in southern India, in Goa, but that is again down to that sea trade and is again peculiar to that particular area. The background to the Malabar Rebellion is, on the one hand, a long tradition of revolt among the Mapillas of the countryside, of the rural interior, a tradition of revolt against both their Hindu landlords and the British Empire, a tradition going back at least to the 18th century. Indeed, further back, it was Malayalam-speaking Muslims who were the first opponents of the European presence in India, way back at the time of the Portuguese Empire in the 1500s. Then, on the other hand, you had the growth of a more radical nationalism in India as a whole. So, to go back to untold lock, its report singled out the non-cooperation movement, which is basically the Gandhi-style protest as famously depicted by Ben Kingsley. And the report also cites as a major factor the Islamic discontent caused by the English opposition to Turkey. Now, that discontent took the form of the Caliphate movement, which was a Muslim agitation within India focused on the status of the Ottoman Empire, or what we might call the Turkish Empire, which had purported to be the nominal leader of all Sunni Muslims, the guardian of the holy cities and so forth. So the Ottoman Empire was at that moment, in the wake of defeat in the First World War, being broken up by a combination of rebellion on the inside and British and French imperialism from the outside. Now, the Caliphate movement was obviously a particularly Muslim concern, but it was allied with the secular and predominantly Hindu Congress Party and non-cooperation movement. This new nationalism, though, was coming from an urban, educated elite. For instance, the Ali brothers who founded the Caliphate movement were both civil servants and one of them was an Oxford graduate. On the ground in the Malabar countryside, this politics did not have that much significance. Local indigenous traditions were more important. But the fact that thanks to the non-cooperation and caliphate movements, it looked like all of India was going to be in revolt, it made many rural Mapillas more militant than they might have been. It was the imagery and forms of the caliphate movement congruent with local tradition which were popular, but not non-cooperation and non-violence. Also, the caliphate movement locally in Malabar adopted forms of the so-called Mopla outbreak tradition, like particular songs and particular rituals. 
Factoring in on disbanded soldiers is probably something untold lock borrowed from a London Times report of a week earlier. And demobilised soldiers were probably not that major a factor in the Malabar Rebellion, whatever the case might have been elsewhere in India. But some ex-soldiers were involved. On the 1st of August 1921, there was a mobilisation against the major landlord in the Pukotur area, who was the Nilambur Raja. This was on a much larger scale than any previous anti-landlord mobilisation. This causes the police and administrative authorities to effectively relinquish control over the area for three weeks. On the 3rd of August 1921, in Thanalore, a large armed crowd assembled to successfully prevent the arrest of some people who had assaulted alcohol traders. That is to say, people dealing in alcohol in contravention of the Muslim prohibition. They would have been tears a Hindu caste who were supposedly traditionally occupied in toddy tapping, which is making an alcoholic drink from tree sap. So there were these two successful acts of defiance of the state authority. The state response to this situation was to send in a joint military and police force to round up the local leadership of the caliphate movement. So what we see here is how the state understands popular mobilisation in terms of leadership and conspiracy and really can only understand the caliphate movement as its opponents are not a not a not a more wider wider widespread popular mobilization this meant troops and police going into the interior rural areas that were comparatively well linked to the cities and towns on the coast linked because they were to the west nearer to the coast and because they had railways so this is an area where there's a intersection of the urban coastal districts where the caliphate movement had a presence with the interior rural areas with this history of revolt. So at 5.30 in the morning on the 20th of August 1921, there was to be a raid on Thiruangadi with a unit comprising of 80 Lancers, 100 reserve police and 60 of the Malapuram Special Force. Now, according to uh, one report, the Malapuram Special Force were not actually able to show up. So there were also top officials there accompanying the raid. That's uh, District Superintendent of Police Hitchcock and Collector Thomas. Now, in this raid, they made three arrests, but missed 21 of their suspects. And they missed Ali Musilir, secretary of the local caliphate movement, who seems to have been the main target. To give a picture of Musilir, he was described by one historian as, quote, a 60-year-old religious teacher adorned in white robes and a red Turkish cap with green turban, end quote. Earlier in the summer, Musilir had led a procession, some armed and in uniform, to the burial site of 19th century rebels to offer prayers. And traditionally, this was the sort of act which preceded a revolt. Now, according to the official report of the raid, as part of the raid, the Kizhakal Palais mosque was entered by Muslim police officers who before entering removed their boots, while the Mam Bram mosque was not targeted at all. Nonetheless, the rumour went abroad, rightly or wrongly, that the mosques had been attacked, particularly the Mam Bram mosque, which was of greater significance. By midday, large crowds of Mapillas had assembled. One crowd marching on Thiru and Gadi from the west was held back by government forces on the outskirts of the town. Another was involved in an altercation in the town centre. Now, 
those altercations happened either at the same time or subsequently, depending on who you believe. In that town centre altercation, two British officers were killed, one of the Indian police and one of the Leinster Regiment. They were 2nd Lieutenant Johnston of the Leinsters, his name is sometimes given as Johnson, and Assistant Superintendent of Police, Mr Rowley. They'd been hacked to death. The police and the army now had to retreat down the railway line. The nearest railway station had been sacked and the railway lines torn up, so they, they had to fight their way back three miles before they could get a train back to Calicut. It was the next lo- night they got back. According to one report, they left behind two missing Leinsters. Difficult to get a handle on what actually happened um, with some of this because there's multiple uh, competing reports with different versions of reality, even on the British side. So, for instance, the regimental history has them marching along the train line all the way back to Calicut, which is a really long way and not the three miles they actually did march. Meanwhile, all this meant that the government forces at Malapuram were cut off. So a relief force was sent back out from Calicut on the 24th of August. And again, this was comprising of men from the Leinster Regiment and the police, and this was commanded by Captain Patrick McEnroy of the Leinster Regiment. He had also commanded the retreat from Thiru Rangali. When everything went wrong, the civilian authorities handed control over to him. The dispatch of a naval cruiser HMS Comus to Calicut freed up the forces there from the task of guarding the city and so allowed the relief column to happen. The official British report on what happened then reads, quote, On the 24th, a force started for the relief of Malapuram from Calicut. The force was attacked at Pukotur, a few miles from Malapuram, by a large body of rebels about 11 o'clock on the 26th. The rebels were armed with carbines captured from the police stations they had looted and with sporting rifles and swords and war knives. The district magistrate in his report stated that they displayed their traditional ferocity and eagerness for death and after five hours fighting were beaten. Their casualties were estimated at 400 killed. Two British soldiers were killed and an officer and five men wounded. Mr Lancaster, assistant superintendent of police, was shot and has since died. From a military telegram it appears that the rebels attempted to ambush the Calicut column and fired from the front, rear and flank and the three officers with the column were wounded. Note the confused nature of the report. Did the wounded include one British officer or four? Also, how did the Mapilla rebels manage to seemingly wound four British officers yet suffer massively disproportionate casualties? Were the British simply exaggerating the numbers of the enemies engaged and slain? Or did the Mapillas snipe the column, successfully hitting officers while also launching forlorn charges at machine guns? Either could be true. On the 30th of August, a British column which had marched south from Bangalore along the sabotaged railway line reached Thiru-Rangadi, where armed clashes had begun ten days earlier. The following day, August 31st, they retook the town. The major part of that column was formed by men from the Dorsetshire Regiment, or the Dorsets. While all this was going on, there were rebel attacks on isolated police posts and on Hindu landlords and destruction of telegraph posts and blocking of roads and railways. This continues from the beginning of September and there is little in the way of major clashes with the Crown forces. Rather, a pattern of guerrilla warfare sets in for the next two months. In the words of historian Conrad Wood, what happened was there was a, quote, a tendency for each small realm in the rebellion zone to isolate itself, end quote, attacking administrative posts and blocking roads. 
Sometimes administrative posts would be attacked successively by groups from different areas. Later, there is a change in policy by the military, who become drastically more repressive towards the civilian population after two months of the insurgency, something which seems to have been occasioned by the visit between the 18th and 21st of October by Sir William Vincent, home member of Government of India. Uh, He was a Welsh man, but a Trinity College Dublin graduate. This begins with a raid on the Mel Murray Amsom on the 21st of October 1921 by men of the Dorset Regiment. To quote the historian Conrad Wood again, quote, Dwellings were burnt wholesale and widespread slaughter of the Mopla population, including an unknown number of those who were not active rebels, occurred. End quote. This was one of a series of similar incidents particularly associated with the Dorset Regiment. The official British figure has 246 killed in the Melmurray Raid. The policy of terror leads to the surrender of community after community. There is also introduction of elite Nepalese, Indian and Burmese units, that is Gurkha, Garwali, Kachinchin and Karen troops, uh, who would apparently at least be better adapted to the conditions of forest and mountain than the European troops. This combination seems to have brought the rebellion to an end. The other famous atrocity which occurred was on, the Nove- was on November 10th, 1921, the so-called Wagon Tragedy, where 64 captured rebels or suspected rebels suffocated to death in a closed railway wagon. There were around 100 prisoners in total in the wagon. So, just to look at the overall death toll insofar as it can be pieced together, in January 1922, late January 1922, the British claim was there were approximately 2,266 rebels killed, 1,615 wounded, 5,688 captured, and the guts of 40,000 surrenders. The large number of surrenders are because people surrendering were not actually combatants, but people afraid of having their... um, their, their, their village burnt and perhaps people in the village killed. Also, according to British government figures, British military casualties were 24 killed and 103 wounded. Police casualties were 24 killed and 29 wounded. There were 500 to 600 non-combatants killed by the rebels with 1,000 to 1,500 forcible conversions. Um, this was out of a population of several hundred thousand Hindus, so... I don't think you can argue that this was a generalised religious persecution. So as I was saying, along with the Leinster Regiment, the other British Army unit present was the Dorset Regiment or Dorsetshire Regiment. The punitive policy of firing villages and massacring their inhabitants was, as we have seen, particularly associated with the Dorsets. So if one battalion of the Dorset Regiment was in Malabar, fighting alongside the 1st Battalion of the Leinster Regiment, where was the rest of the Dorset Regiment? Well, they were in Derry City, in the northwest of Ireland, and they played a particular role there in sectarian clashes in the spring of 1920, a role of backing up the Protestant population of the city against the Catholics, something which in all likelihood contributed to the spread of sectarian violence across the north of Ireland in the year of 1920. Thanks for listening. This has been the penultimate episode of our opening trilogy on the hidden histories of the Irish Revolution. If you like the project, make sure to support it by sharing it. And thanks to everyone who has been sharing. It is appreciated. Thanks to James, our producer, who makes it all happen. Thanks are due also to Brian Hanley for digging up the very useful Untold Luck article on the Malabar Rebellion. For those of you who are curious, 
The theme music we are using for the show comes from the wonderful online freemusicarchive.org. It's a track called All Night Long by the artist Lobo Loco. Go check it out. Peerless and Sheep will be back soon with a pandemic special in which we'll examine the agrarian and ecological roots of disease epidemics and bring a bottom-up perspective on how societies have responded to such challenges in the past. And we will get back to the hidden history of the Irish Revolution. (laughs) 